Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. With us today is Tim Clark. He is the founder and CEO of Leader Factor. It's a global leadership consulting training and assessment organization. And he's the author most recently of The Four Stages of Psychological Safety, Defining the Path to Inclusion and Innovation. And I'm delighted to have him on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. The issue of psychological safety, I think, is a super tricky one, especially in high-performing organizations. It's super, super critical, and people often get it wrong. So I'm really happy to have Tim join us. Tim, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thanks, Peter. It's great to be with you. Tim, first define psychological safety for us. Let me give you a a definition that maybe is a little bit different than some people have heard. So let's put it this way. Psychological safety means it's not expensive to interact socially in a team or an organization. And when I say expensive, it's a, it's a real key word here, socially, emotionally, politically, and financially. Mm-hmm. When it is expensive, and it often is for people, then they don't, they, they retreat, they recoil, and they manage personal risk. So that's a, a basic way of defining it. It's, it's not expensive. And so therefore, you're much more likely to engage. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I love the way you're um, you're thinking about it too, because just the language itself makes it more appealing for leaders who might not otherwise be disposed to creating psychological safety to doing it. Because the you know, but there is a cost, right? There's a cost to innovating. There's a cost to taking risks. There's a cost, and uh, and if the cost is too high, you won't do it. So creating psychological safety reduces the cost. That's right. It reduces the cost. So you can think of it in that economic sense as a transaction, and I think it becomes much clearer to people. Right. I love it. You sort of talk about as a key concept that the leader's task is to simultaneously increase intellectual friction and decrease social friction. Mm-hmm. Right. Can you just uh, that it's, it's sort of self-explanatory, but give us a sentence or two so that that's really clear, because that to me is the underlying purpose of everything that we're trying to do when we're trying to create psychological safety. Sure. So what are we doing on our teams and in our organizations? We're trying to solve problems. We're trying to create solutions. We're trying to innovate. How do you do that? You do that through intellectual friction. We need we need creative abrasion. We need constructive dissent. We need ideas colliding and rubbing against each other. That's intellectual friction. So we we cannot solve the problems that we need to solve. We cannot create the solutions. We cannot innovate without intellectual friction. That's the mechanism. But what happens is the natural, the natural tendency, the natural pattern is as the intellectual friction goes up, the social friction goes up too. Right. If the social friction goes up as well, at some point, it stops, it halts that process of intellectual friction. So the leader's job is to increase that intellectual friction so that we can, we can do that innovation, we can create that, 
that constructive dissent, but at the same time, keep the social friction down so that we have that lubricating oil to keep doing this. Right. Great. So I, I have this whole list of questions I'm going to throw out right now, because what I basically want to do is just have an instructive and constructive conversation about how to do that. I've got the four questions and we can kind of play out with the four questions. But I think what makes this conversation most interesting is that idea is super compelling, right? And it's, and it's an idea and it's a, it's a challenge that for the most part, it is very difficult to achieve. Sort of in Christianity, you would sort of say, love the sinner, hate the sin. But hard to hate something about someone without also making them feel hated, especially if it's essential about them. So hard to criticize someone's opinion sometimes without also creating distance between them, especially if there's if that's if that disagreement is expensive to them, meaning right. they you know they have a, a, a stake in the game and they have an opinion that might help grow their business and you're disagreeing with it, then how do you have that intellectual disagreement without making it personal? And and that by the way, the fear of that is also the reason why we don't have disagreements because we're afraid of hurting the you know we're, we're afraid of creating social friction. So yeah. I I think this is a sixty million dollar question and or maybe it was. 20 years ago. Now it's the $60 billion question. That's right. So so let's talk about that. I mean, and you can start wherever you want to start. And you have these four stages of inclusion safety, learner safety, contributor safety, and challenger safety. But let's just start with this basic question. How do we do it? So I I think where we start, Peter, is that we start at stage one, inclusion safety. That's your foundation. So inclusion safety means that I feel part of the team. I fit in. Right. I've been accepted. I've been invited into your community. Right. For example, I might be hired as the last software engineer on the team. So I'm hired in. I'm an employee. You've onboarded me. I'm part of this team. And let's say there's eight of us. So I am officially a member of this team. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is the sociocultural acceptance. Mm-hmm. So I need to be accepted in that way, which means that the team members give me inclusion safety. That means they accept me by virtue of my human status. And, and so they're accepting me on that basis based on my worth as an individual, not my worthiness. Okay, so let's, let's explore that for a second, because if we're just friends, fine. Yeah. Right. But yeah. Tim, if you and I are on a team and we have performance objectives right. and you're not necessarily achieving your performance objectives, how do right. we maintain this sense of inclusion or the sort of inclusion safety when I'm actually starting to not value you in the same way? And I'm not valued as a member of team. And you could say, well, you have to value you have to value me as a person, and like one of the things you say is that men and you know, do you believe that all men and women are created equal? Do you accept that others? Do you accept others? Welcome them into your society just because of who they are, right? And I wonder if that truly applies to a performance-driven organization. Well, let, let me give you an example. So, think about think about someone that had a significant impact on your life. Could have been a parent teacher, Mm -hmm. coach, friend, neighbor. Now evaluate the nature of your relationship with them based on, let's say, two dimensions. Number one, 
the level of intimacy with them, the mm -hmm. level of the, the degree of closeness. Mm -hmm. So typically it's going to be very high. That right. intimacy is going to be high. Right. On the other dimension, think about accountability. So was the accountability low or high? Now, for here, here's what most people find. As they think about people that have had the most profound impact on their lives, mm -hmm. they'll see a pattern where the relationship is characterized by high intimacy and high accountability. And so if on your team you have a person, say I'm not performing, and you've got to, to tell me so, and you've got to coach me and help me, if our relationship cannot withstand accountability, then we need to question the nature of the relationship. Mm -hmm. Because solid relationships can withstand accountability. But a lot of people, they back off from the accountability because they think that if they hold someone accountable, it will sacrifice the relationship. Right. That means the relationship's just not there. That's right. what that now, if we go back to conventional wisdom, right, the old industrial model was maintain personal and professional distance. So it was all accountability, no intimacy. Yeah. Right. But what we have found based on sociometric research and new research coming out of the, for example, the MIT Human Dynamics Lab, is that you the familiarity is not something that you want to run, run away from. It's something that you want to cultivate. Mm-hmm. Because as you get as you get higher levels of intimacy, as you become closer, if it is authentic intimacy, it can withstand the accountability. Right. And you're going to be able to. So 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 where am I going with this? Where By the way, that's not true. The opposite, meaning if it's authentic accountability, it can't necessarily handle the intimacy. That's right. Right. That's a very good point. But ultimately, what we're saying is we need to create a relationship that can withstand a high tolerance for candor. Right. That's what we want. Ultimately, as a leader of a team, what's my goal? My goal is I need to, I'm the architect of the culture. Right. I'm the curator of the culture. I need to create a culture of intellectual bravery. Right. That's what I need. So it's actually interesting because I'll, so let me share, you know, my methodology and some of the, the, a lot of the work that I've been doing recently is around emotional courage. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're sort of talking about this sort of intellectual courage or intellectual bravery. Mm -hmm. And I want to just throw into this conversation, emotional courage, which is the willingness to, to, to withstand feelings, like to be willing to feel things. Because mm -hmm. when I, when I think about someone who might be hesitant to hold someone else accountable, um, that because maybe they don't have the strength and the intimacy or the, the trust in the intimacy. But if yeah. you're not willing to hold someone accountable, it's because there's something you don't want to feel. Like you might feel the distance in the relationship that you don't want to. You might feel them push back and reject you. You might feel these things you don't want to feel. And so if you're not willing to feel those things, you won't follow through on the actions. And so the emotional courage, the emotional bravery you need, I think sort of needs to go along with the intellectual bravery. Is that, am I thinking about this? I'm curious what, how you, how you, how that lands with you. No, I think that's true because it, so in, in order to create a culture of intellectual bravery, this is what, this is what I found in my research is that when we act with invulnerability in an organization, 
on a team, when we do anything that exposes us to risk or the possibility of loss, mm -hmm. that vulnerability is either punished or rewarded. It's never neutral. If I put myself out there, my vulnerability gets punished or it gets rewarded. Right. And I'm going to pay very close attention to what happens when I expose myself that way. Right. When I'm vulnerable. Right. So the pattern is what people pay most attention to. So if the leader can reward the vulnerability, even if the even if the the suggestions or the input or the feedback it may not be great. Right. But if, if the leader can reward that vulnerability, that attempt at contribution, then the person, now you're building the, the emotional capacity to be intellectually brave. Right. It's all about that pattern. Will the vulnerability be punished? Will it be rewarded? What are some concrete things that the leader can do to reinforce that culture of inclusion? Sure. So let's let's start with this. The leader has to model a pattern of vulnerability himself or herself. And what does that mean? Give us an example. So that might mean in a in a meeting that might mean thinking out loud about ideas, some of which may be silly. Mm -hmm. It may be sharing a past mistake. It may be sharing failures. It's it's simply revealing the fact that you really are human. You really have made a lot of mistakes. You really have had failures. And you got to share that. And so you create a pattern. You model a pattern of vulnerability that everybody can see. Mm -hmm. Because these days, we, we learn our living. We don't earn our living as much. We, we learn our living. We need to show, we need to demonstrate a pattern of aggressive, self-directed learning, and we need to do it in front of everybody else. Right. Number two, here's another one. Great. Uh, so another suggestion would be that you pay very close attention to the way that you emotionally respond to dissent and bad news. These are the most important signals that you send out to your, your team. When the dissent comes back, when the bad news comes back, Everybody's watching you. That's when you're scrutinized the most. So if you can accommodate that emotionally, it sends very clear, clear signals to your team that, oh, you know what? I guess we do dissent. We do bad news here, and that's okay. But if your emotional response to dissent and bad news is defensiveness, insecurity, if you're shutting people down, everybody gets it. And so they will respond accordingly. So there's a couple of suggestions. Love it. Now, there's a lot of leaders who listen to this podcast for whom this is really useful advice. There are a lot of people who work for leaders who don't follow the advice. And one of my questions is, if you don't have a leader who can create, that, who, who does create that kind of psychological safety, then it becomes probably unfair to expect that people within the organization will have the intellectual bravery to confront them with it because probably that will end poorly. So it's like, how do you change this other than from, you know, a, a, an aha moment from a leader or someone like you or me coming in from the outside or some other way? And I could tell you, I've come in from the outside 
And, and I've worked with leaders for whom eventually I've walked away because I've said they're not interested in changing this behavior. They're not going to be able to. And I'm, I'm curious what advice you have for people who are, you know, in that room who don't feel inclusion safety because the leader is not demonstrating that kind of behavior. That reminds me, Peter, of a boss that I had earlier in my career. He was a tyrant. What was his name? Just no, kidding. He, just kidding. He, he, he just, yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, so he was a tyrant. He ruled through fear and intimidation. He would push the fear button every day. Mm-hmm. This, by the way, let, let me just say this to all the listeners out there. Pervasive fear on a team or in an organization is the first sign of weak leadership. That's that's the first that's the first sign. It's symptomatic of weak leadership. The greater the fear, the poorer the leadership. We know that. So that's the way this gentleman ruled. Fear and intimidation. And then he would come to us and say, I need your feedback. I need your feedback. I need your input. I need you to weigh in on this. (laughs) Well, who's going to do it? It's expensive. All right. It's expensive, and that's what you're saying. So if you have a boss that makes the interaction expensive, then it's a very natural, reasonable response to not engage because what are you doing? It's it's personal risk management. It's loss prevention. It's pain avoidance. Right. We're being human. So at this point, so, what you're so, saying is the advice to them is either accept it or leave but don't try to be, but it, it will probably be too expensive for you to try to change from the middle or bottom of the organization. It may be too expensive, but let me give you one more option. Okay. The other option is before you come to a conclusion about whether it's, um, you, you, you can't overcome it, you need to look carefully at the situation and ask yourself, how can I get this leader, this boss to listen to me? Mm-hmm. What can I do? to build credibility in his or her eyes, to build trust with him or her, so that we can begin, so that I can begin to get some traction and get an audience with this person. So you have to think very carefully in spite of the dysfunction, in spite of the, um, maybe the abusive behavior, whatever it is, in, in spite of all of that, you got to think through, is there a way that I can build the credibility and the trust to get this individual to listen to me? Because if I can make some inroads, sometimes leaders, they're full of bluster and bravado mm-hmm. initially, but they'll soften up. Right. If you just build some of that credibility initially. So How do you would, do that? The way that I would do that is I would begin by spending more time, trying to spend more time, more interaction, and ask questions. Questions are usually non-threatening. And so you've got to, you've got to create more dialogue and more face time with that person, ask more questions. They've got to get to a level of, of, of comfort that they're not at right now. And sometimes even the really hard-crusted leaders They'll soften up and you can make gains that you never thought possible. So let me, let me throw in one more challenge to that, which is oftentimes with the kind of leader who's created an environment that creates fear in the culture, yeah. is the, it, you know, there's like, I don't want to label, but there's like some element of narcissism or this is about me, or right? Sure. And so when I start to ask, let's say I'm reporting to that person and I start to ask questions, 
they are only too happy to step into the role of, ha, let me teach you, young one who doesn't know, uh, and let me talk to you about it. And the more questions you ask, the more I'll tell you. And I'm perfectly happy in that relationship. Like, that's a great relationship. I'll keep teaching you. You keep asking me questions. I feel really great because you want to know. But that doesn't necessarily mean, if I'm that leader, that I'm ever open to them giving me advice. Because... I haven't done anything to create that dynamic. The only dynamic is a dynamic that I've probably as that leader already encouraged, which is one where you sit quietly and ask me questions and listen and take in what I want to say. Sure. So the, so the other piece that we need to add to the equation is you're searching for intent. So when you're working with that executive or that leader or that boss, you're trying to understand his or her intent. If they're a pathological narcissist, you're probably going to have to write it off because it will always be too expensive to engage. Right. It's not going to work. But if you're if if you can carefully search for intent and you you may find that there's some pure intent there and that this person isn't perhaps as insecure, isn't perhaps as self-serving as maybe you thought. And if you come to the conclusion that there's some good intent there and that this person may have the ability to not hide behind title, position, and authority, which is a complete cop-out, but actually collaborate with you in good faith, then that may encourage you to take another step. Got it. So you're sniffing for intent. Right. You got to sniff hard and see what you can find. And what's the sign of the right intent? Or what do you do to bring out a sign of the right intent? I think you're you're searching for why that person does what he or she does. So what's the why behind what they do? And this is where you go into discovery mode and you ask some very carefully thought out questions to try and get at that. So I have a thought, Tim, based on that, that that I'm curious to know what you think about, which is so the dilemma we're facing right now is you've got someone who loves to, you know, who who creates an environment of fear, which means that they're probably putting all the energy out and you're receiving all the energy and you want to shift the dynamic and asking them questions may not shift the dynamic. It may, but it may not shift the dynamic because it kind of reinforces the dynamic, but possibly a way. And I'm just thinking about this in this conversation, which is why I love these kinds of conversations because they get me thinking, too, is empathy with that person allows them to start to listen to you in a way where they may see value. So if I'm able to empathize with you, let's say you're that leader, and I'm able to say, and I'm just riffing off of what you said, which is understanding their intent to be able to go, yeah, this must be a, this, like, I I can see how through your eyes, this is a really challenging situation because, you know, you're at stake for the board with this. And meanwhile, you know, there's six of us who come from different, who are coming from different opinions, and maybe we're advocating for our own perspective, but you're the only one holding the larger perspective. And that's got to be kind of frustrating for you and a little hard. And to have them then say, yeah, yeah, that is how I'm feeling. Now you've changed the dynamic. Now the dynamic is, I'm saying something to you, you're listening and agreeing with me. That's right. And I've empathized with you. I've explained, I've, I've understood you. I've understood your intent. And I've understood you well enough so that you're at a point where you're looking at me not as the disciple, but as someone who actually has some insight that you agree with because I'm reflecting back what's going on for you, that you feel seen and heard in that way, which then allows you possibly the space to be interested in seeing and hearing me. I think that's right. 
Peter, and I think that it demonstrates how empathy is able to diffuse defensiveness. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. But before you come to conclusions about whether you can work with a boss or not, I think you need to exhaust those possibilities. Right. That's what I would say. Right. I think you have to do it. Great. Let's uh, do a quick dive into stage two learner safety and see if we can get to stage three and stage four. Just overview, because this was sort of a fun, deep dive into inclusion safety. So inclusion safety is your foundation. Then we move to stage two, which is learner safety. Learner safety means that I feel safe in engaging in all of the aspects of the discovery process, the learning process. So I can ask questions. I can give and receive feedback. I can experiment. I can make mistakes. I'm not going to be embarrassed for it. And I'm not going to be punished or marginalized. Which is doing which is very similar to what we were sort of like the, the, the skills for creating that kind of environment or the same kind of leader that we were just talking about beforehand that, you know, has to sort of br- avoid that fear. I mean, it's, 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 they're, they're kind of fighting the same battle. That's right. Right. But you can see that the vulnerability level has gone up for right. inclusion safety. Just accept me for who I am. Right. But learner safety now I'm vulnerable because I have to engage in these learning activities. I'm taking, I'm taking risks in the learning process, so my exposure's higher. Great. Stage three, contributor safety. Right. Stage three means I've learned, now I want to apply what I've learned, which is the natural human need, the desire is to apply what you've learned. Right. So now I want to be able to act and contribute as a full member of the team Mm -hmm. using my abilities and I want to make a difference. So let me ask you a question, because in my observations, I see people, because what you're doing is you're saying deeper levels, like it's, you know, inclusion. If you want to go deeper, you go to learning. If you want to go deeper, like you have to be even more psychologically safe to contribute. And, and we're getting to stage four, which is the most, which is I'm, I feel comfortable enough to challenge, right? Challenge right. safety. What I find fascinating in organizations is people who are comfortable contributing who are not comfortable learning that i think in in many organizations learner safety is a higher bar than contributor safety because contributor safety requires less vulnerability hey i'm adding value hey i'm important hey i'm safe and secure but learning requires vulnerability it's the i, I you you from from contributor safety you start from a place of i know from learner safety, you start from a place of, I don't know. And I think that I don't know is a much more vulnerable, difficult way to show up and, and higher value in many ways than I know and I can answer. What, I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. Well, here's, a, here's another pattern that we've identified. So think about the fact that we have a lot of baby boomers that are incumbents in management positions mm-hmm. throughout industry. Right. So those baby boomers, many of them are here and retirement is not too far away. Right. And yet they've gone into a state of skills and knowledge obsolescence. Mm -hmm. And so they're trying to get from where they are to retirement without being detected. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. And so if you have become, if your skills have become obsolete and you never cultivated 
an aggressive, self-directed learning disposition, mm -hmm. you're in trouble because you're an anachronism. You are, you're, you're an antique. You don't know how to function in a highly dynamic environment right. where, we, where we have to learn constantly. And so you're very, you're very exposed and you're very vulnerable to your point. Right. Uh, so that's where the learner safety is, is, is an extremely kind of daunting thing uh, for you to continue to learn because you haven't, you haven't followed that path. Right. Right. No, that's, I, I see that. I, I find that lack of learner safety is perhaps the most expensive of all of the costs of a poor psychologically safe environment. Because if you don't have an organization in which people are learning, you're capped. So I find well, that really interesting. That's a good point from a career development standpoint. Right. But let, let's understand though, when we go to level, when we go to stage four, challenger safety, the, 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 the vulnerability level is, is like off the charts. Right. Because now we're saying, I want you to take aim at the, at the status quo. Right. I, I want you to challenge the way we do things. Right. That's a big ask. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. I mean, I also, I, it's funny because I, I could see how it's culturally, uh, culturally dependent also. We're talking about sort of inclusion. And I know that there are certain cultures where challenging is a lot easier to do than learning. In fact, one of the reasons why challenger safety is a higher bar for leaders is because when I create an environment of that is safe for me to be challenged, it means I am willing to take the risk of learning because I'm going to learn by being challenged. Okay. So like the vulnerability of learning is a necessity to my, as a leader, creating an environment in which I can be challenged, which I think is like why challenger safety is so high. Well, I think that's right, and that and that's why it's cumulative because right. the learner safety never the the learning risk never goes away. Yeah, it never does. The vulnerability and risk associated with with learning it never goes away. Right. But I think there's um, I I think there's a peak when you challenge. That's so if we think about innovation, that that transition from contributor safety to challenger safety is what we call the threshold of innovation. Right. Innovation by its very nature is disruptive. It's right. subversive. It undermines the status quo. Right. And so if the culture is not nurturing that, if the leader is not reinforcing that, it's going to be very difficult to innovate. Right. And so I would argue if you look at most of the organizations that die, and they were once successful, and you do a post-mortem analysis of failure, I would argue that most of them die because they lost the culture of intellectual bravery. Right. And what did they get? Now, now what are they operating on? It's an echo chamber. It's groupthink. They've lost their adaptive capacity. They can no longer look out, absorb the competitive environment, and adjust and adapt to it. They can't do that anymore because internally they've commoditized and homogenized their thinking. They don't permit it anymore. Right. They don't allow it. People don't have a license to disagree. They revoke those licenses. So you can't do it. 
Right. And, and so people don't. And that becomes the new DNA. It's great. I love it. We have been talking with Tim Clark. His uh, latest book, The Four Stages of Psychological Safety, Defining the Path to Inclusion and Innovation. Tim, thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Oh, I'd love, love being with you, Peter. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.